Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. Hey peeps, welcome back. Hopefully you weren't too traumatized by last week's episode and this week finds you refreshed and ready to dive into some more short history. This week I'm talking booze, specifically whiskey. And before you get too excited, Peter, I am not talking about the history of whiskey. Instead, I'm diving into an armed revolt surrounding a tax on whiskey. That's right. Today is all about the Whiskey Rebellion. What was it? Why is it in the history books? Grab your cup of coffee, peeps. Let's do this. A revolt of rural farmers opposing an excise tax on the grain liquor the Whiskey Rebellion is significant as the first domestic threat faced by the newly established federal government. George Washington mounted a horse and led a force of thousands to repel a fomenting uprising at the age of 62. But let's start at the beginning. In January 1791, in dire need of cash to pay national debts, Congress passed an excise tax on domestic liquors. The excise tax was a good tax to pass, at least in the minds of the representatives sitting in Congress. To them, it was fair, since it would avoid impacting imports and exports, and was better than a direct tax, which would hit everyone, including the poor. The tax was designed so that whiskey distillers would pay the fee and then pass the increased cost down to their customers, and therefore no one had to deal with the tax collector knocking at their door. Of course, as with all events that make it into the history books, things did not go according to plan. Farmers in the rural parts of the country, who relied on the grain alcohol for more than just consumption, were pissed. Those living in Virginia, Kentucky, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania needed whiskey to help cover the costs associated with moving their bulkier and heavier items like corn and wheat. Shipping their crops was an expensive endeavor and took a long time due to the poor road conditions. Distilling whiskey helped cover those costs so that they could turn a profit. And for the cash-strapped farmers who had excess crops, their surplus could turn into a mode of procuring goods they needed as they could distill their leftover corn and wheat into whiskey and use it to barter. In their eyes, the federal government was placing an unfair burden on their shoulders, all in the name of paying off national debt they had no say in accruing. They saw no benefits thus far of the men sitting in power up north. They were left to fend off invasions of indigenous Americans and limited in their ability to earn a living thanks to the government's failure, in their mind, to force Spain to allow access to the Mississippi River and port city of New Orleans. Unwilling to register their stills, part of the law's requirement, and in no mood to pay the tax, farmers got creative in their evasion. North Carolina shipped their whiskey to Virginia, where they sold it at a super low price, thereby undercutting the tax. And Kentucky just acted as if the tax wasn't law. Opposition was across the board throughout the state. They were unable to find anyone willing to fill the post of inspector, and any distiller who did decide to comply with the law refused to snitch on any of their friends or neighbors who weren't in compliance, despite offers of rewards for the information. 
I guess they must have heard the saying, snitches get stitches. The community as a whole seemed united, as even the state law enforcement inside Kentucky struggled to bring charges against known offenders. Grand juries just refused to indict. Kentucky's insolence got so bad that Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton tried to negotiate with the state to gain their compliance. Hamilton offered the state a way out. Their previous past-due tax payments would be forgiven if they simply agreed to impose and enforce the tax moving forward. Kentucky ignored this offer. By 1795, Hamilton had extended three years' worth of tax forgiveness, only to be met with continued silence. But it was in western Pennsylvania where they grew especially agitated with the tax and were steadfast in their opposition to payment. In August 1792, a convention was held to discuss their defiance of the law. Resolutions were passed aimed at, quote, legal action to obstruct the law, end quote. I don't know how that's even a thing. They were committed to fighting the power, forming committees of correspondence, and intimidating collectors and anyone who decided to comply with the law. President Washington had to figure out the appropriate way to respond. Like so much else in his presidency, this was a first. The first domestic unrest facing the nation. He knew whatever decision he made and action he took would be held for future generations. As he did when figuring out the best response to the war emerging in Europe, Washington called his cabinet together to discuss and formulate the appropriate response. While Hamilton advocated a strong military response, Attorney General Edmund Randolph promoted caution. While the resistance to the tax was irritating and illegal, authorizing a military force seemed a little too reminiscent of the overbearing government they'd just escaped from. Washington also had an ear for public opinion and sensed that authorizing troops would not have a positive reaction in the press or by the people. So Washington decided caution was the better part of valor and instructed Hamilton to issue a strongly worded proclamation that condemned the resistors' actions and asked citizens to comply with the tax, but omitting any mention of issuing troops to force compliance. The resistance continued in this manner, relatively unchecked, but tensions came to a head in July of 1794, which changed Washington's approach and tested the authority of the federal government. Part of the tax law allowed for the inspection of barns and cellars at will. Colonel John Neville, who was working as the revenue inspector for western Pennsylvania, assisted Federal Marshal David Lennox in attempting to serve farmers who had yet to register their stills and therefore were in violation of the law. The writs, or warrants as we know them today, required the farmers to appear in federal court in Philadelphia. The farmers, stuck in their opposition, fired muskets at Neville and Lennox. Lennox took his leave and headed towards Pittsburgh, and Neville went home. Dedicated to sending a message, a number of farmers surrounded Neville's home and demanded he release Lennox, whom they were convinced was in hiding under Neville's protection. Neville managed to scare them off by firing a gunshot, mortally wounding one of the rebels. This escalated tensions, and the next day, on July 17th, 600 rebel forces marched on Bower Hill, Neville's home. Led by a veteran of the American Revolution, James McFarlane, the men surrounded Bower Hill, guns aimed. Neville, who was able to secure a few soldiers to act as a barrier, retreated from the house to hide, away from the trouble. 
The soldiers and rebels engaged in a minor firefight before McFarlane called a ceasefire. Apparently, after raising a white flag, McFarlane stepped into the open and was shot and killed. To the rebels, McFarlane's death equated to murder and seemed to be the triggering event to further radicalize the other farmers. Incensed, the rebels burned Neville's home to the ground, and on August 1st, 6,000 gathered together at Braddock's Field outside of Pittsburgh, carrying a flag with six stripes to represent the four counties in Pennsylvania and two in Western Virginia who were in armed revolt against the tax. The crisis was at a tipping point. Clearly, the rebels were not responding to the pleas of compliance by the federal government. In fact, they were violently opposing such requests. The question was, though, what exactly was Washington allowed to do? Did the Constitution provide him the authority to call upon the militia to handle a domestic dispute? Did Congress need to be involved? The cabinet remained mixed on the appropriate response. Hamilton and Secretary of War Henry Knox supported engaging the military, but Randolph remained hesitant. What if calling the military further empowered the rebels? Washington decided to seek advice from Supreme Court Justice James Wilson, who confirmed the president did have the authority to call out the military and did not need congressional approval. Still hoping for a peaceful and nonviolent end to the uprising, Washington issued another proclamation on August 7th. The military was coming and would be in western Pennsylvania by September 1st, those acting in violation of the law were ordered to disperse prior to the military's arrival or face the consequences. To make matters worse, as Washington was preparing for a potential military action against American citizens for the first time in his presidency, his Secretary of War was nowhere to be found. After providing his support of military action in the cabinet meetings, Henry Knox asked Washington to take leave and tend to an urgent matter at home. Knox, on the brink of bankruptcy, had to return to his estate and tried to fix his finances. Knox's departure at the moment Washington felt he needed him most permanently damaged their relationship, eventually leading to Knox's resignation. Without a Secretary of War, Washington asked Hamilton to fill the role. Hamilton, who had been advocating for the use of a military response, was only too happy to acquiesce the president's request. Though he announced publicly the militia would be utilized to squash the uprising, Washington still pursued other non-military means to achieve a resolution. Trying all possible tactics to achieve peace, Washington sent a trio of men to attempt negotiations with the rebels. Unfortunately, talks proved unfruitful, and on September 25th, Washington issued one final warning. Washington, who was a Federalist and a Nationalist at heart, a man who bled and fought hard for the country to come into existence, both on the battlefield and in the political arena, was incensed at the actions of the men violently protesting a law that was legally passed by a representative government. To Washington, these men were testing the Constitution's validity. If someone could ignore any law with which they disagreed, then how can the country survive? Washington wondered, quote, whether a small proportion of the United States shall dictate to the whole Union, end quote. And so, at 62 years of age, Washington became the first and only president to supervise troops in a combat situation when he rode out to the western frontier to join the 13,000 militiamen preparing to squash the rebellion. Knox, still in Maine dealing with his estate, was unavailable, and so Alexander Hamilton joined the president on his journey to the military camp. 
though he tried to explore all other avenues before calling on the military. Reactions were mixed, with some accusing Washington of trying to use the installation of troops as a precedent to secure future enforcement of federal laws. Anti-Federalist sentiment was growing, and criticisms of Washington continued to plague him throughout his second term. The rebellion was just another example in the eyes and minds of those who would later become the Democratic Republicans of the misguided policies of the Federalist president. By the time the Federal force made it to Pittsburgh, the rebels had disbanded. Washington managed to successfully squash the protests and exert federal authority without firing a single shot. When all was said and done, only 20 men were arrested, with many being either acquitted or pardoned by Washington himself. And though Pennsylvania gets the attention in the history books today, Congress did not forget Kentucky. Over a six-year period, 175 distillers were arrested and convicted for violating federal tax law. I guess the tax man always gets what he wants, eh? The Whiskey Rebellion was the first domestic threat to the presidency, constitution, and the rule of law. It called into question whether the colonies could reasonably exist as one nation. It tested the validity and interpretation of the Constitution and power of the federal government and provided for yet another trial for a man trying to navigate his way through the new job of commander-in-chief. Successfully ending the rebellion in a nonviolent manner while ensuring enforcement of the law provided a roadmap for future generations of presidents to utilize when dealing with domestic strife. It codified the government's authority to levy taxes and demonstrated both its willingness and ability to suppress revolts against the republic. It also helped accelerate the rise of political parties, with two opposing factions growing further entrenched in their political beliefs, culminating with the rise of a new political party and the end of the Federalist Party in 1800. All that over whiskey peeps. Whew! Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together.